Welcome, folks, to another edition of Smith and Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones, with you. Fresh content every Thursday right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. And, of course, your favorite podcast platform as well, Google, Apple, Spotify, or otherwise. Download, subscribe, rate, review, and share Smith and Jones. Uh, we've had some fantastic guests joining us over the last few weeks, over the last few months. Heck, all season. And we've got another jammed one for you tonight as well later on. Piston senior advisor Ed Stefanski will join us also Former NBA head coach, former player, one of the all-time greats as well in terms of guests, let alone players and coaches, George Carl on the program. But we kick things off right now uh, with a man who's getting set for Game 5 between the Celtics and Heat. Will Miami close out the series tonight? They weren't able to do the sweep, Jonesy, but they could do it tonight in five games against Boston. And to talk about mostly things from a Miami perspective, covering the Heat for a long time from the South Florida Sun Sentinel, Ira Winderman. Ira, I think a lot of people. Well, maybe I shouldn't speak for a lot of people, but I, I think I'm. I think I'm correct, maybe in saying that I do speak for a lot of people. Thought that this might have been over a couple of nights ago, but Boston got on the board, and Jonesy, as you were just saying to me off the air before, you know, uh, having this conversation, we are that close, Ira, to this series maybe being two-two. So when you're entering a game five from a Heat's perspective. I assume you can't be looking at this thing saying, oh, you know, we are absolutely in the driver's seat because Boston maybe, if you dig a little bit deeper, has not necessarily played that poorly and Miami not may not be as in control as some think. No, I, I would agree with that because, I mean, let's face it, I think going forward from here, the Celtics is going to be favored in every game. Tonight's game, they're favored by eight. Well, if Boston wins tonight and they move within 2-3 in the series on a two-game winning streak, I think there's a very good chance they would be favored in game six, even in Miami on Saturday. And we all know the home team is always favored in the playoffs for game seven. So it's a very fine line to hear walking on one hand. They should feel good about themselves. Nothing wrong with the three, one lead. I think if I asked either of you guys before this series started, Hey, the Miami heat have a chance for a three, one lead against the Boston Celtics. You both would have said, Hey, they would have been in heaven in that situation. The fact they went up 3-0 and it fell to 3-1 feels a little bit different. But you know what? This is going to exit like so many playoff series have in so many sports this postseason. Even if the Celtics lose and you were to tell me Boston's the better team, I would not disagree. Just like my hockey team down here in South Florida. If you were to tell me the Boston Bruins are better than the Panthers, I would not disagree. Hate to bring this up. If you would tell me that the Toronto Maple Leafs are better than the Panthers, I would not disagree. After watching the incredible forecheck of the Carolina Panthers, if you were to tell me that, that Carolina Hurricane, rather, that they were better than the Panthers, I wouldn't disagree. Same thing in these playoffs. The only team of the three the Heat are played, I think they are better than the New York Knicks. And I think the Heat got a very big break with the Knicks beating Cleveland in the first round, because I think that would have been more of a test for the Heat also. It's like almost like down here in the Final Four. The NCAA tournament does not always produce the best team in the country. Right. It produces right. the championship team. I think you're going to see that in hockey this season. Whether it's Vegas, whether it's Florida, you're going to say, yeah, neither was the best. And I think when the Heat play the Nuggets, there'll be plenty around the country. Certainly in Boston and Milwaukee, you'll go, that's not the best team. You know what? You win the playoffs, you get the, the championship, you get the ring. Let someone else argue about who should be number one in your power rating. Uh, Ira, totally agree. And, uh, you know, my, my adage is it's not, you know, it's not the best team that wins. It's the team that's playing the best that wins. And mm-hmm. right now, absolutely, you know, yes. I, I, I look at the heat, but, and we, we keep saying this, like last year, Toronto went down 3 nothing to Philly and, and 
you know, Nick Nurse threw those words out, you know, at that point when he was the coach saying, oh, it's never been done. It's going to be done at some point. Why not mm-hmm. us? And I'm sure, sure that every team that goes down 3-0 feels that. But for some reason, this one feels like, I don't know, could it happen? And you just painted the scenario there. If Boston wins game five and then – you know, they go back to Miami for a game six. It just, it, it, it's, it's, it, does this one feel like it's closer, Ira, or not? Oh, it's felt like it's closer from the get-go, just knowing the talent disparity, despite the team that has the disparity is winning. I, I would put it this way. I think a game six would feel like a game seven for the Heat. I, I think they would realize how it all sets up and what's going on. But again, for as much as people are going, oh, if Jason Tatum continues like he did in the last game, if Jalen Brown comes around, All you need is one more freaking playoff Jimmy Butler game, and it's over. So really what you're saying is this, game five, game six, game seven. Can Jimmy Butler have one of those moments where it doesn't matter what the heck anyone else is doing? And that's what he's done all postseason. It's like like saying of the Florida Panthers, can Bobrovsky have another game like that? Well, he keeps having them. I think there's one more Jimmy Butler game left in this series, and I think that's all it's going to take to advance the Heat to the finals. Ira, how did we even get to this point? And and what I mean by that question, I mean where Miami is right now with this 3-1 lead. Let's let's look at it from the other side. They've been unbelievable. Sure. So even with this lead. And and but to go back to down in the fourth quarter against the Bulls in yeah. that second play-in game. Like how did we get to from there to here in such a short period of time? You know what, like I was trying to mention with the Knicks series, there's so much serendipity involved. I mean, look, they played the Bucks five games in the first round, but Giannis missed two and a half of them. That helps. They got the Knicks in the second round instead of the Cavaliers team that with their great length and the Heat being a bunch of Lilliputians would have been a really, really big problem. And they got a Boston team that before the series started a couple of days before were playing to every last breath against the 76ers just to get out of that round. So it really does matter how things set up how health works out for both teams. And I just think there's something about having a dogged individual like Jimmy Butler where no moment is too big for him. I think that matters also. Well, you know, Ira, I, I, I look at um, this series, and, and, I, and I, I'd love your opinion on this. Um, Doc Rivers is looking for work, but partway mm-hmm. through that series against, against Boston – you know, the national people in the national media were saying he's coaching circles around Joe Missoula. Uh, here, you know, Boston's down 3-1 right now, and Eric Spolster knows a thing or two about coaching. Yes, Jimmy has had, you know, Jimmy Butler playoff Jimmy-type performances, but how much do you think the needle is being moved and, and, and pushed a little bit by the way, you know, by the experience of Spo as a coach? Oh, I think, I think that's a, a totality statement right there. I guess I was just focusing on players when you were asking me about factors, but Eric Spolster probably is the best in-game adjustment strategy coach in the NBA right now, with all due respect to a Greg Popovich or a Steve Kerr. That's what he does, and that's what a coach who has had less to work with. You know, the Big Three era was fantastic, and it ended in 2014, and we're a decade removed from that. And he's tried to win with the likes of Dion Waiters and James Johnson and Hassan Whiteside. He is, he is constantly changing what he does. He's throwing zone at you. He's changing the way he plays zones. He's going to lineups that no one saw coming, and he's making it work. Um, you know, everyone talks about Eric Smolster as a Hall of Fame level coach, and that's what he is right now. 
And, and you know what? I tell people when they ask about Joe Missoula and, oh, he looks lost, they say, go back. Go back to 2008 when Eric Spolster was coaching Michael Beasley and Jermaine O'Neal and a bunch of misfits and trying to make it work. You learn by doing in this game. You learn by developing continuity with the same team, with the same franchise, with the same training regimen. That's what the Heat's afforded Eric Spolster that so few have afforded their coaches. So Eric's grown immensely. You know, Joe Missoula, you know what? This is not to sound condescending. Joe Missoula looks like a rookie coach. You know what? Every coach was a rookie coach at some point. Pop was a rookie coach when he placed Bob Hill. Steve Kerr was a rookie coach when he placed Mark Jackson. You have to start from somewhere. Joe Missoula will get better if the Celtics have patience. But if you're asking me in the matchups of who checks the box in coaching, I'm not so sure there's a single coach in the league where Eric Spolster wouldn't have his box checked instead of the opposing coach. Mm-hmm. You no, know, Ira, I'm, I'm, I'm going to veer off the path here just for a second sure. from the from the Heat and Celtics specifically, but just to the point that you're making, it's it's wild to me still. And Jonesy, I know we spoke about this last week, but the two coaches that were in the finals two years ago, the two coaches that I thought were going to be in the finals again this year, are both out of work right now in Mike Budenholzer and Monty Williams. Nick Nurse won a championship four years ago mm-hmm. and suddenly out of work right now as well. It's wild to think, and you can speak obviously very well to it. Teams like the Heat, teams like the Spurs, and few other examples, sticking with a coach, sticking with a philosophy and a program and a mantra and a mindset and a way of how we play and building that culture and that core around a coach as opposed to a revolving door, which yet again the NBA seems to have been for coaches already in this offseason. You know, it's just all about stability. And I spoke to Stan Van Gundy before the series about that. And obviously Stan has coached in Miami, he's coached in Orlando, Detroit, New Orleans. And he said, you can't establish continuity of playing style, of structure, of conditioning and everything if you're switching your coach every year or two or three or four. I I, I think almost every one of these coaching changes is a mistake from this standpoint. I think you can sub out your assistant coaches. No offense, guys. I think you're the hardest working guys in the league. You can change your roster. But if you have your structure in place, player A knows he has to play style A. Instead, we're seeing with these teams is, who knows what the Bucks are going to look like? Does the new coach come in and say, you know what, Chris Middleton's injured too much. Let's go in a different direction. I don't want to play Brooke Lopez in a drop defense. All of a sudden, his value goes down. In Toronto, Nick built this great approach of everyone is a long-limb player except for Fred Van Vliet, and you don't know where you can go with the ball. You change that, all of a sudden, it's not just a one-year makeover. It's a long-term kind of deal. Same thing that's going on in Phoenix when you lose a Monty Williams, who is a great coach and a great people person. But look at what's happening. You have places like in Phoenix, a new owner, so you wind up in a situation like that. In, in, in Milwaukee, one of the major owners stepped down, so you have changes there. Look at the Heat. The Arison family has owned the Miami Heat for 35 years. Pat Riley has been the chief executive of the Miami Heat for 26 seasons. It's a matter of continuity and a reason why this team is in their seventh conference finals under Eric Spolster. Yeah, it's... Uh... There's something to be said, and, and, and you know, uh, we kind of laugh at it because I thought we had something going in the same regard here in Toronto, and it, mm-hmm. it got sidetracked. But the word culture, Ira, and it's a word that's thrown out there, and it's to me, it's one of those nebulous things you can't define, but you know it when you see it. And as much as I, I, I bristle because, you know, we hear about heat mm-hmm. culture, Sure. It's true. And look at where they are now. It's true. You can't you can't you can't deny it. And it's like I said, you can't necessarily define it, 
but you know it when you see it. They're not everybody's cup of tea, right? Not everybody can play for the heat. And I'm going to give you the perfect example. And you know this because you know how rambunctious he can be. Kyle Lowry never refers to heat culture. He has been around long enough in his career where he knows a way of doing things and what's right for him. So when we start talking about drinking the Kool-Aid, Kyle always veers in another direction. And I would put it this way. I do not believe in heat culture with a capital C as if it's some sort of cult and rules to live by. But I believe in heat culture with a small lowercase c in that there are the right way to do things. And if you follow basic precepts, whether it's like John Wooden's, you know, pyramid of success. Yeah, Yeah, you need to have guideposts. The guideposts can be different in Toronto or Miami or Boston or Denver, but you need the guideposts. And if you keep changing your coaches and your front office and your structure, you don't know what the guideposts are. The one thing about the Miami Heat, capital C, lowercase c, you know that there are guideposts. And so a Kyle Lowry, when he's a free agent, says, can I work under those guideposts? And he's found a way to make it work. Jimmy Butler, who couldn't make it work anywhere, seemingly, once Fred Hoiberg took over in Chicago, came in and said, okay, I can make it work in my own unique ways under that. And the Heat have been bending again. That's why I call it lowercase c, to realize that for some guys, yeah, the rules will be different because this is such a star-driven league. Ira, because you brought up Lowry, I want to ask this question as well, using sure. using him as a bit of a jumping-off point, in, in, including other players as well. Um, get out your, your crystal ball for me here. Whether the Heat lose either to the Celtics or in the finals, whether the Heat win ultimately the championship, how much does what happens in the next few days or few weeks impact what happens in the next few months, the off season specifically? I think it always does. We always hear, the Heat always tells us, Mickey Harrison is willing to spend if it leads or is championship contention. Well, there's no better championship contention than winning a championship because this team with the owner's luxury tax right now cannot afford to re-sign Gabe Vincent and Max Struess and stay under the new second apron of the onerous new luxury tax that basically limits any transaction. So take someone like Kyle. He has a year left on his heat contract at $30 million. But the Heat can use the stretch provision to take that down to $10 million by waiving him after the season. Well, all of a sudden, with the $20 million you save, you can bring back Max Struess. You can bring back Gabe Vincent. So, yeah, it does get interesting because you're limited unless you want to go into a Golden State Warriors-like stratosphere with your salary but this is not silicon valley unless you want to go where the brooklyn nets were at one point but that's when they had an oligarch ruling the team with god knows what kind of money he made god knows where so yeah it's going to be interesting that the nba did exactly what they want with the new collective bargaining agreement that no matter how good you are you still have to face the monetary realities bringing us much closer to the nhl's hard cap and the nfl's hard cap so many times we see NHL teams win the Stanley Cup and then guys are gone and you're going, yeah. wait a minute. He was huge to their run. And the teams will tell you, yeah, we can't afford under the hard cap to bring back our players. I think the NBA is moving that way also. I think you are going to see more and more championship players winding up on other teams in the offseason. Ira, you, you talked about hockey, and you know I watched. You know I think about the Chicago Blackhawks having, mm-hmm. uh, you know, had their Perfect. run yes. and, and and couldn't hang on to guys. And I I don't even want to run here in Toronto. I just want like a little <laughs> movement. I I want to get off right. the start line for crying out loud. But 
we would be remiss if we didn't mention the way South Florida is crazy right now with the Heat and the Panthers. I mean, I'm watching the PGA tournament, and Brooks Kepka is talking about yeah. going to watch the Peas. And, and, the, and the, the golf guy didn't know who was interviewing, didn't know what he's talking about. I'm like, dude, that's right. the Panthers, man. Like, um, give me a, give Eric and I a, just a, 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 the, the Coles notes, the crib notes version of what South Florida is like with hockey and basketball, you know, on, on well, maybe on the verge of championships. Well, I'll give it to you in a Brooks Kepka perspective. The guy wins the PGA on Sunday in Rochester, is at the Panthers game on Monday, is at the, Heat, the Panthers game on Monday, the Heat game on Tuesday, the Panthers game on Wednesday. So there's sort of always something to do here when it comes down to that. And it's just caught everyone. The shock value is what makes it so special. Again, if you remember the Panthers in the third period in game seven in Boston with just about a minute to go, we're down a goal and everyone's saying, Oh, the Bruins are the greatest season ever in NHL history advance. Boom, goal, boom, overtime. All of a sudden Boston's left in tatters, which maybe the heat will leave Boston in tatters after tonight or later in the series. But you're talking to number eight seeds and the greatest stories written in sports are always about the unexpected stories written in sports. You have two number eight seeds who have no right to be where they are right now, and that's what's made it more special. I mean, South Florida is important because it'll help grow a fan base that still is about eh, 75% attendance and best, so maybe they'll build a little bit more. And with the Heat, it all of a sudden just rekindles the expectations of the Big Three era and the Dwayne Wade period and what it could be. So, yeah, there's a little bit of an arrogance for teams that, frankly, during the regular season, weren't very good. Ira, we appreciate the time and the insight. Thanks for joining us, and enjoy the game. And hopefully next time we'll talk from the finals. Thank you, guys. All right, Ira. I always appreciate the time of Ira Winderman, and as he said right at the end there, Jonesy, hopefully we do get a chance to maybe chat with him again in the finals over the next few weeks as we will keep Smith and Jones rolling right until the end of the finals and into draft night and maybe the first week or so of free agency as well. But one thing I want to quickly mention before we get to our next guest, and I'm positive or at least pretty damn close to positive that you and I are in lockstep on this because we did chat about it the other day. We are texting back and forth. Speaking of the Heat, even though he's not a member of the Heat anymore, he's you know he's on the Lakers and he's well now he's golfing or doing whatever he does in the off season. There is no chance in holy hell, in my opinion, in my mind, that LeBron James is retiring. Like zero, zero. I'm not even going to say point one. There is no chance in my mind that this guy will not be playing when the season starts next year. No, uh, I, I we are in lockstep. You know the. Uh like the old movies where there's a three-legged race and they, they tie your your right leg to my left leg. Yeah, that's because there's no way this guy is leaving. I mean, for somebody that is constantly and consistently working on his legacy, uh, you know, he became the all-time leading scorer. He, he, he's talked about wanting to play with his son. Um you know, the conspiracy theory says he was deflecting credit away from Denver in that post-game talk and making it about him and the Lakers for next year. Who knows? But I, 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 I'm with you, Eric. There's no chance that he is retiring. No chance at all. All right. Just had, just had to get that in there. We could probably do an entire oh, yeah. show on that, but we won't. We, we, we will move on to our next guest. Joining us on the line right now, former member of the Toronto Raptors front office, and he's been in the league a long time, and I say that respectfully, currently working as a senior advisor with the Detroit Pistons, Ed Stefanski. Ed, before we get into uh, 
basketball, I want to ask my perfunctory Cleveland Browns question. You know, it's like recruiting a kid in AAU. If you talk to the kid, you also have to talk to the parents. So I want to know how the coach <laughs> is doing first off. And I saw, uh, I saw workouts of, of Deshaun Watson limbering up in the OTAs. Am I, am I putting a dollar on my Browns to like to be in the playoffs this year and, and maybe like you know print the 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 mock up for the Super Bowl hat? Is it is it that time yet? Well, first off, I'm I'm happy to be on with you guys. You know, uh, I love uh, talking to both of you, and uh, I'm a big uh, Raptors in Toronto fan. Um, but to talk about those Cleveland Browns, uh, I too ask questions to Kevin. I think he probably uh, I annoy uh, I annoy him, but um, I think Deshaun uh, Watson. I said to Kevin. You know, last year he came back. He was there's no question he was rusty. Um, I said, "How's he doing? Are you are you concerned?" He says, "He's the least of my concerns. He won't be a problem at all." So, if the head coach is very happy with the with the uh, quarterback, then I guess we all should be too. All right, can we can we leave it alone now? No disrespect to your son, but Jonesy, seriously, can we just get off the brownies, please? See, we, see there's we, you know, there's the Bills guy. There's the Bills guy, Ed, that has his bed already in it. With Buffalo, like the, you know, one of the favorites to win the thing, he's like, yeah. you know, talk talk to me next February. Yeah, I know, I got exactly. it, I got it. Hey, yeah, exactly. I, I, I'm I'm an Eagles fan. I'm an Eagles fan. So there you go. Oh, see, you're well, you're you're sitting pretty good. Then I mean, I know I, well, we won't bring up the Super yeah. Bowl, but uh, anyways, uh, we we digress. Enough fo- yeah. enough football talk, I suppose. But Ed, you know what? I I could probably find a segue here because what I find interesting actually. Even what, no matter what sport we're talking about, we were just chatting with Ira Winderman from the uh, South, uh, South Florida Sun Sentinel about the right. buildup of the Miami Heat and the culture, of course, that we've heard so many times over the years, the culture of the Heat, the culture of the Spurs, but winning organizations, winning programs, and how that translates in different sports. And it oftentimes is the teams and the organizations that build that culture that I speak of, Ed, that have the consistency and the continuity and the stability. So whether it's what you're trying to help build in Detroit, whether it's what you've been a part of in other stops along the way, what, in your opinion, as a guy who's been there on so many different levels, is maybe the key ingredient or a few key ingredients to trying to find that success and that stability from the top and having it filter right on down through the team? Well, there's no doubt in Miami it starts with Pat Riley. He went down there. Pat has had all the uh, juice from the owner, and I'll give the owner a lot of credit. He let Pat do his thing. Uh, does he question Pat behind the scenes? I don't know if he does or not, but Pat is the man, and Pat does everything, in my opinion, the right way. He doesn't look for shortcuts. He doesn't bring players on that won't adapt. He may bring them on and they don't adapt. He, he moves on from them. And one story I'll tell you, when I was back with the Nets years ago, I always liked to go out early and watch the other team do their individual workouts. A, I get to see the player. I can scout the player a little bit, see what his work ethic is. I may be able to pick up a drill or two that is neat to to pass along to our assistant coaches. But I also like to look at the coaches out there working. And years ago, there's this one kid who was just working so hard. And it's the first time I kind of saw where they had the football pads on and they were 
pounding the guy down in the post. You don't have to do that anymore because there's no post play. But they were this guy was pounding and pounding. He was sweating and sweating. And I, I went up to someone and said, who is that? And they said, that's Eric Spolster. He's uh, uh, one of our development coaches. And I said, wow. I told who, uh, Rod Thorne at the time, I said, this kid works really hard. He said, yeah, I know his father. I said, he's pretty interesting. And it's funny. When I was in Philadelphia as the GM, I always – He's Pat. I said, I'm going after Eric. He says, there's no way you're going to get him. And look, the, the, the continuity is just great. Pat's unbelievable. I think Eric is one of the best coaches there is in basketball today. And they bring the player in and they have a system. Now, does it always work? No, but they're true to their, and they, and they don't make a lot of changes in the front office. They're good to their people and they don't make a lot of changes. And Ed, the model is is tried and true, and it works. But why why don't teams stick with it? And, you know, as we record this right now, four four guys that have rings, four championship coaches, are are looking for work. Nick Nick Nurse, Doc Rivers, Frank Vogel, Mike Budenholzer. And the guy that was in the finals a couple of years ago, two games from a ring, he's looking for work too. Well, patience is a virtue. And we in the NBA, there's not much patience. And it goes back to we talked about Pat has full reign down there. Pat knows what he wants and just does it. And they stuck with it. Uh, I think you could look. And, you know, you get a lot of owners that come in. Um, you know, they're, they're trying to feel their way around. Uh, and they make some changes that maybe they regret and and uh, and shouldn't have done. Um, now with all these coaches, it's hard. Yeah, um, they everybody wants instant success, and uh, you know we 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 go from different fads. And the one thing was we saw a lot of a uh, young assistant coaches get head jobs did well. Uh, that seems to be a little bit of the trend now, but. Right now, you have some very high-level, successful head coaches that I got to believe some of these top teams in the way of Philadelphia, in the way of Phoenix, and and where you're sitting in Toronto are are definitely going to be uh, interviewing uh, some experienced people from the head coaching position. Speaking with Ed Stefanski, Ed, I wanted to get your uh, opinion on on what we've seen in this postseason as well. And, and Jonesy, I should maybe hand the baton to you because this is even more so you than me. But, Ed, um, when it comes to Denver, it's been um, a slow and steady climb for them over the last three, maybe even five years. It's been a fun rise for them and and a two-time MVP winner in in Jokic. uh, He doesn't win it this year, and now he's suddenly in the finals. Uh, maybe Denver's best shot that they've had in recent memory. And does this speak to everything we've been discussing here these last few minutes of sticking with a coach, Mike Malone, sticking with a program and a core and letting it build and giving it time to grow? No question. Got to give a lot of credit to the Cronkies to hang in there. Uh, Mike Malone, I'm prejudiced again. I knew him as a little kid with his father. He can flat out coach. Now, he holds people accountable, and I guarantee there was people over the years, players-wise, that didn't like him holding him accountable, but they stuck with Mike. He's a, he's a terrific coach, and uh, you guys know how I don't like to go for a lot of uh, dinners and things like that. I pay 
<laughs> I'd pay my own money to see Jokic play. That's how much I think that kid. I think he's one of the best players I've ever seen in basketball. Yeah. I go far, far back. That kid is so much fun to play uh, to watch. Uh, he does it all, the triple doubles. But he's the players playing with him have to love him because he makes them all better. I was fortunate enough to be with Jason Kidd, and Jason Kidd made all these players better and got them great contracts. Well, here's a seven-footer out there that's doing it uh, for these guys, and they've developed a nice group. Uh, I am also uh, was involved in Detroit when we drafted uh, Bruce Brown, I think, at 46. Bruce has just become – I'm so proud of him. He's, he's not the best player on the floor, but if you want to win a game and you want a guy to compliment people – you want a Bruce Brown out there. So he's having a terrific series. But they're a prime example again. They did it a lot through the draft. Tim Connolly's got to get get a lot of credit. I'm sure he's uh, you know, feeling it right now that they're going to the NBA Finals and uh, he might have been able to put a ring on his finger here. Uh, but he, he'll do a good job in Minnesota. But, yeah, that, I think you, you hit it right on the head on, on him, on uh, the Denver Denver Nuggets also. Ed, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, watching the finals, whoever it is, because, I mean, it, it's the ultimate for a guy like Jokic. He's been, he's been, um, he's been terrific, but the, the one thing that people will always look at, and I think back a few years ago with Giannis, oh, he's great, but he hasn't, you know, show me, show me your rings. And, uh, I mean, this is, this is going to be big for him. Um, how much does this long layoff hurt uh, Denver. I mean, the, the finals don't start till June first. Yeah. They've been off for a few days already, and you know, Eric's Eric's you know got the great line. We always talk about it: rest versus rust. Yeah, I, I think you guys hit it right on the head. I'd be concerned about it uh, having that uh, much time off. I remember when we were uh, when I was in Jersey, we had a ten day uh, window, uh, I think, till the finals, and we were uh, we were rusty. Uh, coming out early you know it may take a half or so uh coming out uh being rusty so yeah it's something i I think you got to think about they have a lot of depth so you know again mike's mike's a terrific coach he knows more than i know maybe mike uses a lot of guys early uh just to get the rust off in a game and see what happens but uh they're going to be tough for either team that gets them right now. If, if Boston can pull off, obviously it'd be a miracle. It's never been done before. Uh, if they can get in there, it'd be, it's going to be tough for either team uh, to match up. And, you know, the ring thing, yeah, I, I hear you. It's a shame because there's been so many great players that have never gotten a ring and people uh, put that out there. And there's so many factors uh, of how you win a championship even if you're a great player, may not have the same amount of people uh, complimenting him that the other uh, team has. But in this case, uh, Jokic has got Murray. The kid Porter has been uh, been really, really good for them too. And Gordon seems like a, a very nice complimentary piece uh, with those other guys. Hey, Ed, you know, we have maybe some sort of a, a bias uh, on this side of the border, keeping an eye out for the Canadian kids, especially the ones that have – developed into very good players and 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 certainly 
all-stars and stars when I think of a guy like Shea Gilgis-Alexander in the season that he had. Jamal Murray is an interesting player because just a couple of seasons ago, he seemed to be, and, and, and check me if I'm wrong on this, he seemed to be on that trajectory where could he have been in a, a Shea Gilgis-Alexander type of role? Could he be an all-star? Then he was you know, sidelined by injury. And, and had to battle his way back. And he was just even recently saying in, in a couple of interviews and, and addressing the fact that, yeah, I felt sort of like the forgotten guy and you sort of get passed over because you're not the, the hot ticket or, or, or the, the, the pretty item any longer. And he's had to grind his way back. Having said all that and given that buildup, how good is this kid? How good do you think he still can be in this league? And he's clearly been proving it um, big time over the course of this postseason and coming off a very impressive conference finals? Well, your first statement, the Canadian players are terrific. I mean, they are really good. I go back and I think we probably would uh, agree that it was Vince Carter who started this mania of young kids wanting to play basketball, maybe not as much as hockey. Uh, I think I really believe Vince started this. And there are some great players uh, from Canada. This kid Murray is showing what he's showing in these playoffs, how he's shooting the basketball, getting to the basket. He he does it a little bit different. You know, to me, he glides. He handles the basketball so well. He's not this uh, over-the-rim kind of athlete. But, boy, does he knock down some big shots and some big moments. And it doesn't seem that the moment is too big for him, which is huge when you're in the finals here. And Jokic plays the same way. Just the way they dissect you, uh, they're so tough. And I think Murray, you know, who's the best player? Is it Jokic, Murray? Well, they complement each other so well. But Murray in the playoffs, you'd have to say, has been as good as Jokic. And that's a pretty big statement for the way Jokic has been playing. Ed, and uh, and I say this uh, uh, full disclosure with my Canada basketball board member hat on. With the World Cup coming up in in uh, this fall in in Southeast Asia, over the other side of the world, Eric and I were talking about this. It's very possible that Canada could start the best backcourt in the world with Shea Gilgis Alexander and Jamal Murray. Uh, you're going to get no argument from me. Shea Alexander, he is, he's, he's, he's just phenomenal. I mean, um, I, everyone thought he was good and the Clippers liked him, but I don't, there's no way the Clippers would have ever traded him if they thought he was going to be this kind of player. Um, and he'll, what I like about that backcourt is Alexander to me can get to the basket uh, and plays and gets into the lane where the other guy, Murray, just can knock down shots and step back on you. Yeah, that's that's an elacious backcourt. I mean, I mean, I don't know what the depth <laughs> of your team's going to be, but, but you, you got two terrific uh, guys in the backcourt. Yeah, no argument at all. Ed, um, I want to switch and gears I tried a little to bit. Get as... my, when, I was, when I was in Toronto, I tried to get my dual citizenship, but I got <laughs> let go before I could get it, just so you know. Maybe there's prejudice there. Hey, maybe Jones has we'll got a spare room for you, Ed. Yeah, we, you can come, come back sometime, and we'll see if we can line that up for you. <laughs> Ed, I want Eric, to switch gears a little room... bit here. Hey, go ahead, hey, Jonesy, go ahead. The spare, room goes, the, the spare room goes at your expense. Remember that special suitcase I'm trying to build for you? 
Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that from the last one. All right, uh, Ed, I said, I said I want to switch gears. I do for a second here. We were talking before you came on. Uh, and listen, respectful of, of, your, of your role, I don't know, maybe you can't say anything, and you can tell me to shut up if you can't say anything. But we were discussing LeBron James and the comments that he made after the Lakers got ousted. And and I guess I respect the fact, Ed, that in the heat of the moment, you know, he says something. Does he actually mean it? Is he trying to shine the spotlight on him a little more than the Nuggets or on his own situation? I don't know. But, Ed, I, I think there, and Jonesy agrees as well, he said the same thing. There is no way in holy hell that I believe this guy is actually considering potentially retiring. I think there's no way in heck that he's not playing in the NBA next season. And I, I don't know if you have any opinion on that, but also how much do you think his decision right now will ultimately factor in the big picture of playing alongside his kid one day, something that he previously has acknowledged he would like to do and the decision that Bronny may have after one season or a couple of seasons at USC. I mean, heck, it could be LeBron and Bronny playing for the Pistons, playing for the Raptors, playing for just about anybody two, three seasons from now. What do you think? I don't know LeBron well. Uh, you know, you take him for his word. But I don't – after an emotional uh, game and a loss like that, I, I, I don't really – buy into a lot of things people they say with emotions i think you give him a few not even days in his case let him get away and he just put 40 on the board (laughs) he's 39 years old he puts 40 on the board he's walking away i'd be shocked if he walked away and it'd be a shame because he's such a great player at this age still he's one of the best players to ever play the game um so and, and and i think he would be uh, I think he's that kind of guy that he's healthy, uh, thank God, and he and he's strong and big enough that he can last the next couple, two, three years and play along his son. How neat is that? And how cool is that? And I think that's how LeBron thinks. And uh, yeah, I just think the emotions of the of the press conference at that time, uh, I, I I didn't put any credence in it to be honest with you. Hey, Ed, um, last one for me here. Watch the draft lottery with much excitement the way everybody, the whole world was watching it for, you know, the, the lottery prize that was Victor. And I was, I was very disappointed that you guys, uh, you know, fell to where you were. But I look at the draft, there's still a whole bunch of really, really good players available. Give me a, your quick synopsis on this draft. Well, yeah, that was a very disappointing for us, you know, to drop one to five, which is the worst we could have gotten. Um, yeah, there are players, uh, you know, the, the Victor kid obviously is, is the guy. Uh, uh, it reminds me when I went back in Trenton, New Jersey, uh, I went to a game with LeBron James against Carmelo Anthony. I think LeBron got 39 and Carmelo got 36. And I walked out and said, I'll take either one. I said, but LeBron, man, that guy, that kid, he could be something else. And uh, both players have been fantastic. Uh, I, I saw the same thing when w- watching Victor. Uh, he does things that you really, it's amazing. And he's 7'4 or 5 in his wingspan. So he could be a generational player. Having said that, there's a lot of nice players after that. Um, and I think at five, you know, we didn't get it, Victor, but I think I, I know we're going to get a player to help our uh, rebuilding of this. Uh, you know, we we're happy Cade 
Cunningham looks like a nice player. Uh, Ivy's shown some real glimpses of being a very good player. The Doran kid, Young, uh, done a nice job. Stewart. So we just got to keep adding talent. And it's hard when you're in a rebuild, but you just got to do it. And would we love to have the number one pick? Of course we would. I mean, if anybody says, oh, we're not disappointed in getting the number one, uh, there's something something wrong with that person. So, yeah, but we got to move on, and we'll get a good player at five that will help uh, the Pistons win. Ed, we appreciate having you on, as always. Uh, look forward to chatting again soon and hopefully seeing you one, uh, one of these days real soon as well. All the best. Well, you guys are great, and uh, the best of luck to those Raptors. That was Detroit Pistons senior advisor Ed Stefanski. When we come back on Smith & Jones, we will hook up with another former NBA head coach and player and one of the all-time greats, George Carl, on Smith & Jones next, right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Smith & Jones. Eric Smith, Paul Jones with you right here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan and, of course, your favorite podcast platform. Subscribe to Smith & Jones wherever you get your podcasts. Download, subscribe, rate, review, and share. Thanks again to Ed Stefanski and Ira Winderman for joining us to start this show. And uh, we continue on Smith & Jones with now a Hall of Famer, a Hall of Fame coach, uh, a lot of years in the NBA as a player and coach, and a guy that uh, we always love chatting with. He's been on our show a number of times. We bring back to the program George Carl. Coach, great to have you on the line, and uh, it's great to be talking to somebody that knows what all of the buzz, the excitement, distractions, and everything else that goes with the NBA Finals is about. Um, would you have any advice for Michael Malone, for Nikola Jokic, for Jamal Murray? I mean, it's the first time for these guys. It's the first time in 47 years in the history for the Nuggets. As a guy that's been through it, what would you, what would you say to them? What are the pitfalls, that some of them, that they need to avoid? Oh, man. Stay away from the negative energy of all the glamour, all the hype, all the media, all the interviews, and, um, you know, have a good PR director that can kind of organize very quickly what you do a day, every day and keep your focus on the purpose. The purpose is to win. The purpose is to win a title and win an NBA championship. The one time I got to the NBA Finals, uh, our travel plans were a reason why we lost uh, to Chicago. And I, don't, I won't go into that story. It's a long story. But I'll tell you right now, the NBA Finals is totally different than anything else an NBA team does all year long. All year long, the home team takes care of all the problems around, this, around the arena. Now, in the NBA Finals, the NBA comes in and they take care of it all. And it is gigantic. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the Super Bowl is just as bad. Probably the World Series is just as bad. But the NBA, is, it's very much a distraction. And, and, and I think, you know, I think Coach Malone will talk about that since uh, he's had some experience with that. But it's still... It's still going to be, for a team that's been there for the first time, it will be a little bit shocking. Hey, Coach, it was it was four years ago today, actually, at the time that we're, we're you know, doing this interview, four years ago today that the Raptors 
uh, beat the Bucks and punch their ticket to the NBA Finals for the first time. So for myself and Jonesy as two team broadcasters, it was our first experience of the NBA Finals, and that's just from a broadcaster's perspective. So I can only imagine how it's multiplied tenfold, a hundredfold for a coach, for a player, as you were just speaking about. But maybe to, to kind of expand on that a, a little bit further, what you were just discussing, we oftentimes talk about young players, especially rookies and, and, and players in their first couple of years in the league, the transition from college to pro and the transition not only on the floor but off the floor and the lifestyle. How much of a distraction, to use your word, is it in the finals where you're only playing for two and a half hours every other night or every couple of days, but it's all the other stuff, all the other um, commitments and and people being pulled in a different direction in between that take away from focusing on the ultimate task at hand? Um, I think you're talking about basically experiencing the maturity of being able to handle and sustain your focus and your mental toughness to the purpose at hand. I mean, I'm sure it's similar in an NCAA tournament where it's just one game. But the greatness of the NBA game is after every game, you have a day to make adjustments. And that, and you really don't have a lot of practice time, so you've got to have a, maybe a more mentally tough team and a team that maybe has gone through the experience before or at least has players that have gone through the experience before to understand that your team as when you're a team and you're trying to figure out how to win a game, give that time the most precious concentration that you have. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it sounds easy, but it isn't. And, and so many times in an NBA playoff series, in any playoff series, little things win games. And little changes win games. And I think the team that's more mentally tough, mentally focused, and maybe connected are the teams that usually win a game because of that in a seven-game series. Uh, you know, you know, you got Miami. I don't know how much experience they have in the finals. They have Lowry, and they might have some other guys, but if Miami goes, it could be a very inexperienced NBA final. If Boston goes, they were there last year or two years ago. But they're not. I think right now Boston is the least connected team, and their maturity has been very immature throughout the season. And so it's going to be really interesting, the mental part of the finals. Coach, we were talking before we came on, and we mentioned it. We just had Ed Stefanski on with us. The break, the the layoff. I mean, the Nuggets closed it out quickly. Uh, they've had a couple days off, and and we know that, you know, these finely tuned athletes are they're like, you know, like racehorses. Like <laughs> you got to work them out. You got to you got to keep them, you know, tuned up and in shape. How did the Nuggets counteract, you know, Eric always has the great line, rest versus rust. How did they counteract this long layoff and to make sure they're, they're firing on all cylinders when the finals do get going? I think it's difficult. I, uh, 
I think nine days. I think I think Denver has eight days or nine days. That's a long time not to play basketball, not to play competitive basketball where you've been playing every other night for the last six weeks. Big games, a little pressure, and I, I just think game one and game two are always really important to the team that has the home court advantage. And I think if Denver can get off to a two-zero start. That enhances their chances of winning. But just because of the, uh, I mean, I, 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 Denver's playing very, very well right now. And, and I, I think the layoff, just for me, as a coach, I would not be happy about it. So you've got to figure out how to make it happy, how to make it successful. And then you also got to stay in shape. I mean, there's somewhere along the way in these next seven or eight days that you're probably going to have to scrimmage pretty seriously at least one and maybe two days uh, to keep your edge that you've had in the last couple games. Now, Miami, you know, if they close it out tonight or they close it out in two days, you know, they won't have as much time. Plus, they have the chance of getting Hero back in the lineup which it seems like Denver right now, they could get a little rusty, and Miami could get one of their best players back. So I don't know that advantage. And I, and I think if Boston somehow finds a way of pulling off the miracle that's never been done before, I think then Boston has the most talented team. So I think Denver has got, got some mental work to do in these next seven or eight days. I wouldn't put that mental stuff on the head of the players as much as on the coaching staff. But if I was coaching right now, I wouldn't be sleeping a lot probably during the night. Hey, Coach, there's no denying, and, and these are my words, not yours, but I, I'm going to guess you'd agree. There's no denying you'd love to win every year. You'd love to be at the top of the mountain every single year. But is there, do you think for Mike Malone, for Nikola Jokic for, for Jamal Murray, for the Denver fan base, for anybody connected to the Nuggets. Do you think there's some gratification in the slow burn, the steady climb that they've had where they've been good, they've been good, they've been good, they've been knocking on the door to finally bust through? And maybe this is you know something where they're here again next year, they're here again the year after that, or maybe not because it's hard. You, you can speak to that firsthand. But the slow burn to finally get the gratification of being here and having a chance. Well, I don't think there's any question that being there for the first time, there'll be a little little shock to it. But I don't know how much you guys like Jokic, but I think Jokic is the most mature, tough-minded basketball player in the NBA today. He doesn't show emotion. He plays like he's an assassin. He's fundamentally sound. His offensive efficiency is off the charts. He's the best passing big man ever to play in the NBA. He's got great rebounding hands and can get 20 rebounds in any given night. And I and he is here for one purpose. His purpose is to win a ring. And I've, 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 I mean, he reminds me a lot of Tim Duncan, no-nonsense type of player, fundamentally sound and kind of boring type of player. But I want you to know, Jokic is a killer. He cares about winning. He knows how to win games. He knows how to make other people better. And I think the advantage that Denver has 
is they are very well prepared for this. Malone has done a great job of putting this team together on the court. The organization has put their best roster together. This has been their best roster by far over the last four years. And I think they're ready to win. Yeah, they, to me, Coach, they look like a team that's well-connected. And, and the, the one, you know, I look at the way the league is gone, and the one weakness that I would say Jokic has with his defense, they're able to hide it. Like, I, you know, I watch, I watch them switching out before his man goes into a, like a sprint screen on the, on the middle screen and roll up high. He switches and lets somebody else go up there, and he stays close to the bucket, better for rebounding. I give Michael Malone and and his staff, all of them, a lot of credit for for you know taking advantage of what you know the rules have allowed people to do, and I, he he is by far I I've never seen a better passing big man, maybe a never a better passing player uh, in the NBA. And if you're scouting and you're pl- preparing for Denver, it, you know I, I'm, you're a Hall of Fame coach. How do you counteract that? Like how do you how do you beat that guy if you were coaching against him? Oh, boy. I've been asked that question by about 20 NBA teams when they come through town in Denver. <laughs> um, it's not easy. Um, I think the one thing that I believe is uh, it's not a weakness because he's damn good. I think the least efficient place for Jokic is on the low block. He is much more prolific when he's having the ball at the top of the key, handing the ball off, running pick and rolls, finding backdoor cuts, throwing the lob to Aaron Gordon. He's a point guard. His best game is when he is is facilitating the game for the other guys on their team. Now, towards the end of the season, some teams went small and put guys like Tucker and put guys like a big type of far plug type of defender. And then they would bring a big double team to him. And that kind of got him out of sync a little bit. But I've not seen anything that stopped him. And I think right now, I think whoever plays Denver has got to figure out, do you want to go after Murray? Who I think has had more up and down in his consistency pattern this year. Or do you want to go after Jokic? I don't know if you can take out both of them. And so I think it's, it's going to be an interesting game plan, especially I think Spolster has a lot more weapons from a standpoint. He likes to play with the game a little bit. He'll zone some. He'll box in one some. He'll double team some. And, you know, I don't know if Jimmy Butler can cover Jokic, but I think it would be fun to see if he could. Because I think somewhere along the way, if Miami makes it, I think you're going to see Jim Butler covering Jokic. Hmm. That would be fun to wow. see. That yeah. would be well, fun to see. I mean, I, I agree with you all that I would rather ball pressure his ball pressure, put ball pressure on his decision-making as much as thinking about stopping him from scoring. Because I think deep down inside, Jokic wants to facilitate more yes. than they want yes. to score. Uh, Coach, it's interesting because, you know, the Raptors gave Denver all they could handle in the two games against them. Beat them one game, and Raptor fans would argue, had it not been for 
you know, Scott Foster and some whistles that it, and, and they did what you said. It was OG Ananobi, a smaller kind of still physical, but quicker guy, ball pressure. And they brought a big double team with, with Jakob Pertl and tried to stay home on everybody else. And, and the one thing that you can't account for is he may not be, as you say, as efficient on the low block, but when he goes down there, man, he's still seven feet and he can score down in the low block the same way a guy could back 20, 30 years ago. No, I, I think LA saw a little bit of playing, you know, playing the four man on on Jokic and then bringing Anthony Davis to him. And I thought, I mean, uh, someone asked me yesterday or two days ago what I, I would, I would go get Tristan Thompson because Tristan Thompson played like 10 minutes against him. And I thought he did a great job against Jokic physically. Uh, Miami doesn't have that guy to be physical. Boston really doesn't have that guy either, except Rob Williams might be able to do it. But, I think it's going to be. I think both Miami and Boston have different strategies that could give Denver Denver problems, and I think it could be a six or seven game series. But to be honest with you, I still think Denver is the better basketball team. And my biggest worry, as we talked about previously, is having eight days off and what the hell are you going to do for eight days to keep your edge. Coach, um, before we let you go here, uh, we'd both be remiss if we didn't uh, mention the name Carmelo Anthony as well. As much as we're all talking about the Nuggets going to the finals for the first time and a chance to win a championship potentially, uh, one of the guys that's one of those building blocks and a hell of a building block over the course of the uh, history of the Nuggets franchise, uh, officially announcing his retirement. I know that uh, you, you've, uh, you know, been been public with your comments about him in recent days as well and how much he's meant to that organization and how much he meant to you in going to Denver to coach that team. Um, I don't even know where the question is outside of just your thoughts on Carmelo and his impact and, and you know, basically two decades in the league and going down as one of the all-time greats in history. Well, I mean, he's a Hall of Fame player. I've had a few Hall of Fame players in my lifetime with Gary Payton and Ray Allen and Chris Mullen. And, and it's always a blessing to have that type of player. I, I kind of I wish Melo would have tried to be a six-man about three or four or five years ago because I, I thought when his career was starting to plateau a little bit, I wish he would have accepted being a six-man because I think he would have been a hell of a six-man. I know he kind of wanted to play this year. It didn't happen. I think it's been great now that he's moving on. And I hope Denver, the Denver Nugget organization somehow, some way, very quickly recognizes his specialness and brings and puts his number up in the rafters. Or at least puts his name up there because I think Jokic wants to put his number up there. Hey, Coach, can, can, I, can I draw a comparison? And maybe I'm completely out to lunch on this. You can tell me if I am. Would it be similar to the way things kind of unfolded with Denver, with Mello, to what happened for years with the Toronto Raptors and more so the Raptor fan base and Vince Carter? 
because Vince, you know, depending on the version of the story you believe, asked his way out or then ultimately said, well, maybe I don't want to leave or I could potentially stay. And there were a lot of Raptor fans for a long time, George, that did not like Vince, booed mercilessly when he came back to town. But it was a number of years ago now, Jonesy, where there finally was that, that sort of come to peace moment, come to God moment where the fans said, we forgive you. Vince said, sorry, whatever it was. And Vince literally drawn to tears in Toronto. And he is beloved once again and welcome back to Toronto with open arms. Is that a fair comparison? Is that maybe the script that should ultimately happen with the Nuggets and with Carmelo? Uh, I think, I think it's, I think it's already moving in that direction. I think I know. I know the fan base, there's still a bitter side of the fan base. But, you know, Melo came in here when his team won, I, I think, 16 games the year before. And within a year, they're in the playoffs. And they've been in the playoffs 75, 80% of the time since then. And that, that power, that influence is very important to remember. Because a young player, a lot of young players think they're really good and they come in the league and, and they have a lot of things go wrong. Melo came in the league, and he wasn't LeBron, but he was close to LeBron. And Denver was the beneficiary of that. I think the Nugget organization is very interested in doing exactly what you just said. Come back, kiss and make up, and go forward as allies and friends to each other. Coach, we appreciate the time as always. I know you've joined us many times in the past. We always love chatting with you. Uh, enjoy the off season, and uh, we'll uh, look forward to speaking again down the road. All the best. Who's going to become the coach? Who's going to be the next coach in Toronto? <laughs> hey, did you put hey, your did, resume in or not? I, I was going to say, there's a Hall of Fame coach out there named George <laughs> Carl. Who knows Masai Ujiri? Uh, uh, that would be uh, that would be a long one, but uh, Masai hasn't called yet to come up. I'm sure he has my number. thanks very much george that was naismith hall of famer george carl jonesy we send out thanks to george carl ira winderman and ed stefanski for producer austin mackey and my man paul jones i'm eric smith thanks again for tuning into smith and jones and make sure you subscribe to smith and jones wherever you get your podcast download subscribe rate and review share as well with fresh content every Thursday right here on Sportsnet 590, The Fan.